Cool. Hey, folks. Uh, for those, hi. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Julian. I take care of the youth stuff at the church, the digital stuff at the church. Never done a sermon before, so bear with me. Uh, yeah, um, I'm happy to be here. Glad you guys are all here. Um, so we've been talking about the Psalms of Lament this whole summer. We're at the end of the summer, so we've got a last one for you. So a great philosopher once said, I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to drain me of my energy. That great philosopher was Drake. Look, I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to drain me of my energy. But really, how many of you could say that you do have enemies? Like maybe there's people that you dislike, but enemies? Really? Enemies? So in my own life, there have been different people who have hurt me, done wrong by me, just like any of you guys. But there's a specific person I remember at one point being my enemy. So back in first grade, I'd moved to a new school. I was a shy kid, and I didn't really know anyone else in the school. Until one day I did, and his name was Tosin. I didn't know much about Tosin, beside the fact that he liked to bully me. The poor, shy, friendless Julian, little me, I was very short. I'd get pushed, hit, he would have my snack taken from me, um, and school was horrible, all thanks to Tosin. And I didn't know much about Tosin, besides the fact that I hated him. And as time went on in first grade, I did eventually make friends. Friends who weren't shy like I was, and friends who would stand up for me. And one day, the final day of bullying, Tosin tried to pick on me at recess. But I wasn't alone this time. Tosin, my friends and I, were standing out in the grassy field outside the school where there were bushes and burrs. And I don't know if you guys know what a burr is. Most of you probably do, but like the little spiky, sticky things that are like on plants, you can take them, they stick to your clothes. So, on this final day of bullying, instead of getting picked on and having to live with it, my friends started picking burrs and throwing them at Tosin's head. There was maybe seven kids throwing burrs at this poor kid's head. Now, I didn't know much about Tosin, besides the fact that I had finally beat him in that moment. But it didn't end there. So a couple days later, the people in my friend group actually started to become friends with Tosin, which was pretty confusing to me because he bullied me, we threw stuff at his head, I didn't really get it. But everyone forgave him for being mean, and he was nice to everyone in the group from then on. But I still hated him. So throughout the Psalms of Lament, there was a constant talk of enemies and people that the writer straight up wants dead. Talk of, God, how could you let my enemies hurt me? How could you let my enemies tear down what you built up? God, I know one day you will smite my enemies. So like in Psalm 68, uh, verse 1 to 2, it says, May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. Which is a lot worse than throwing burrs at someone 
for sure. So for us today, all of you out here in the church, is there anyone that you want smited, smote, uh, smoted, uh, wiped out? I, I hope not. But also I know some of us have been wronged so greatly that that might be a reality. Is there anyone that you just want to trip and fall even? Anyone that you could wish could have a permanent pebble stuck in their shoe? Anyone that you wish could just have a bad day? What do we do with that feeling, though? What do we do when we've been wronged historically, systemically, and whatever other ickly we can think of? And I promise, as we talk about it, it won't be just be to turn the other cheek. Because there's more to it than that. So we're going to turn to Psalm 79, one of the Psalms of Lament, to find out. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. So, so far, do you think that these people that the psalm is talking about are being, are worthy of being called an enemy? They've done God dirty. They've killed people, disrespecting them even further by not burying the dead. So what should be done to these people? We're going to keep reading. How long, Lord, will you be angry? Oh, how long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call out your name. So it says, pour out your wrath, which is very intense. Pour out your wrath. And rightfully so, the writer is angry, feeling impatient with God. We've all been there, maybe not in this specific type of circumstance, but more specifically, this is asking God to pour out his wrath on those that do not believe in God, those who are not on their side. But I think what's coming up next is where a lot of us are actually able to see ourselves a bit better. Uh, For they have devoured Jacob and devastated him. Oh, no, that's not it. No, that is it. Uh, for, the, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. So, this is asking, forgive them, the writer, For the sins of the past. Forgive them for the sins of their past. But the people who have gone against God and us, they can burn. For the people that we might wish ill upon, we have to think, have we never hurt someone else? Have we never done anything wrong? And if we were all allowed to smite those who have wronged us, it wouldn't be too long until the whole world would be smoted up. Uh, For example, I'd... Smite Rob for bullying me into doing this sermon. 
Then after that, you guys would probably smite me. And then my wife up there would smite you guys. And then endlessly, everyone would be smited until there's no one left. Um, it'd be an endless cycle. And much like ourselves, both the writer and his enemies have done wrong against God. As we've all done wrong against God at some point in our lives. And yet, the writer does not believe that they should be smited themselves. Let's save that for the other guys. When we're in a place of anger, it can be difficult for us to see our own hypocrisy. We may not be killing people, burning down temples, or anything like that, but we've all sinned. And Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done wrong against someone else. And for us, when faced with any kind of punishment, we'd likely like forgiveness. And with Jesus, we do get that forgiveness, and our enemies are given the same luxury. We all have the option to be forgiven and loved by God, so why not wish that for our enemies? Why not wish God's love for people who have cut us off, or the people who might be rude to us at work, or the people who might have caused us deeper trauma than that? It isn't easy. So we'll continue reading before we talk a bit about an enemy in the Bible who did receive the same kind of forgiveness and love and who actually did make a change. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you with your strong arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt they have hurled at you. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever from generation to generation. We will proclaim your praise. So, in this Psalm 79, there's a bit of context to it, some of which you might be able to read into just from everything going on. So the writer was likely a survivor of the siege of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. In this, they would have seen the temple destroyed, a direct affront to God, people around them killed or displaced from their homes, and their home turned into something completely unrecognizable. And we also need to keep in mind that this is all before the idea of repentance through Jesus' sacrifice for everyone being a part of things. And with God's love... Judgment does come. Just like as parents love their children, they do need to occasionally discipline them. And as long as parents don't go too crazy with it, eventually, parents, uh, your kids will grow to love you for the direction that you've brought to them, though sometimes you have to discipline them. But parents, good parents anyways, know that discipline comes out of love. They don't necessarily want to hurt their kids. At least most parents don't. And God is the same. So we're going to read Acts 9 to talk about an enemy. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, 
Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blinded and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in in Jerusalem among those who call on on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. There's a lot going on in this story. So this man, Saul, killed followers of Jesus, persecuted him. In all ways, he was an enemy. And even in being so, he was giving this, given this miraculous opportunity to change. For our enemies, for our mean co-workers, for family that may have caused us pain over the years, and for anyone else that might make your life miserable, punishment isn't all there is. With God's love, Change is what we should want for those who have wronged us.
Just as God has changed us, he can change those who have hurt us. But how can we want change for those who have hurt us? I mean, they are terrible people. They've hurt us. They're jerks. But for this, there's a couple different places that we have to look. First, we're going to look to Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the neighbor as your, love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us may have a hard time loving ourselves, and that's a subject for another time. But when it comes to ourselves, we know ourselves. It's easier for us to justify our actions because we know our intentions. We know the ways in which we've grown up to bring us to the opinions we have or the ways of acting that we have on our own. We don't often think that the ways in which we're acting are wrong unless we're shown or told otherwise. So why can't we view our enemies in this same way? It can be a bit difficult. And for the people who, can't, who have cut us off, we actually should be slow to anger. We should try to understand the reasons why they might have done it. Was it on purpose? Were they in a rush? Maybe in the past someone taught them how to drive incorrectly and they've never been taught otherwise? 1 Corinthians 13.4 talks about love and what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of, record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. When people don't wash their hands in the washroom, why are they that way? Are we in a position to help them change? And if not, how can we not be easily angered? It's important to think of love as we move forward. When people are racist towards us, why are they that way? Are we in a position to help them change? And if not, how can we not be easily angered? When people are sexist towards us, why are they that way? Are we in a position to help them change? And if not, how can we not be easily angered? When people hate Christians, why are they that way? Are we in a position to help them change? How can we not be easily angered? With Tosin, Dr. Tosin, my first grade bully, I didn't take the time to understand why he was the way he was. Looking back on it, he was a kid who was alone. He didn't have any friends just like I didn't. And he often didn't have enough to eat for lunch or snack, which is probably why he was stealing mine every day. He was coming from an environment that was a difficult one. And those feelings aren't always easy to manage. So that anger was taken out on me. But he changed. 
And when he changed, my friends didn't hold his past against him. When we change, God doesn't hold it against us. When people we hate change, we shouldn't hold it against them, though it's definitely hard to do. So before we finish, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. How can we be slow to anger? How can we, how can we keep calm? How can we help ourselves to cool down after we've been done wrong? How can we accept those who have changed? If the people who have done, done wrong by us have changed, can we work to love them? Can we look to 1 Corinthians 13 and reflect on what love is? Can we keep no record of wrongs? Can we not delight in evil? How can we love those who haven't changed? So we don't need to give people who have hurt us a hug necessarily, but we need to embrace that love is patient and love is kind. And this isn't to say people should be allowed to repeatedly hurt us. And if you're in a situation like that, you should try and get out of it if possible. But even if you can remove yourself from a situation in which you're being done wrong, you can still love. You can love by not wishing ill on them, but instead praying for God to work in their lives for change. And whether that comes through God working through you or through someone else or something else, it's still good. So I'm just going to pray and we're going to all get out of here. God, please help, help all of us as we go about our weeks, our months, the rest of our lives to keep in mind your love. Keep in mind how we can love those who have wronged us, those who might wrong us in the future, and those who have wronged us in the past. Help us to be patient. Help us to be slow to anger. And help us to reflect and take the time to think on you before we decide how to react to those who have hurt us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.